Welcome back to Beyond Prisons, a new podcast examining incarceration through an abolitionist lens. My name is Brian Sonnenstein, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kim Wilson. How are you doing, Kim? I'm doing well, Brian. How's it going this week? It's going well. Thanks for asking. So today, I'm very excited to be talking to Five Mulim Ak. Uh, Five is the co-founder of Incarcerated Nation Corp, a collective of post-incarcerated project leaders that serve those incarcerated, previously incarcerated, and their families. As a unified and visible voice, Inc. educates the public through meaningful educational projects that expose the conditions of confinement for millions of incarcerated people. Five is a national organizer that works with the National Religious Campaign Against Torture, TRUA, and the Anti-Torture Initiative of the United Nations and the ACLU. Five, I'm so glad that you're here today. Thank you for joining us. No, thank you. Uh, Thank you for having me. So there's a whole lot for us to talk about today, um, and I just want to get started by giving you an opportunity to uh, opportunity to talk a bit about what you're working on um, and how you arrived at uh, the work that you're doing. Oh, thank you. Um, so Incarcerated Nation Corp is a collective, like you said, of most uh, people previously incarcerated, but we look at it as the most experienced people with incarceration. Um, so we try to create projects that serve those incarcerated, but then we're also visible voices, and that's that's like two different things. One is being out there in the media, which you don't get paid for, but it's sort of reliving trauma every day to use your time incarcerated, your personal experiences to echo and amplify others. So I think visible uh, voices is what we call each other. Uh, So we're in films, plays, TV shows, and do a lot of production around that. Uh, Because so many times you get these series like Oz, right? And people, a million times people say, is that real? And I'm like, no. Right. Um, Yeah, that's one of the problems. We have these assumptions of how incarceration is and that it's just okay. In the movies, people get released. Everybody's happy. They're just walking out back to their job. No, it doesn't happen like that. Right. Right. So it's it's vital for us and the work that we do. We see it as the most groundbreaking work. Uh, When people look at the advancements in the last five years, right, around Rikers, Rikers has been an atrocity for decades. Why in the last five years? Because more and more people directly impacted are talking about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the, uh, if you could tell folks some of the issues in particular that you work on with incarcerated populations. I mean, I know that there's a sort of a broad array of issues that that you're working on, but um, can you give folks a bit of an idea of some of the specific areas? Well, one specifically is youth and alternatives to incarceration, right? So we try to create, being that we work so much in the community, most of us are on community boards, and we're also leaders in our neighborhoods, we try to infuse that with alternatives to incarceration. Mm-hmm. So if I had 20 churches or 20 community organizations that I can have youth do service in, I will then put that into a, a working program and bring it to a judge and say, why sentence him to Rikers for eight months? You know, let us get him for a year, let him go back to school and let's work on uh, reprimanding this. And that's what the juvenile system is supposed to do, but we end up picking up the parts. Like Raymond Santana, who works with us, he also inspired a project that we have called Safe Surrender because so many kids are being picked up by officers who are 12 and 13, right? So now you have a 12-year-old who's in uh, elementary and uh, junior high school, elementary school, and there's armed guards and there's armed officers, the warrant squad coming to arrest him because he was involved in like a Facebook photo or some type of scandal. Um, so we have to have those protections and it's up to us in the community. So most of our projects are community service. We run food pantries. We work with the aging organizations. So Mid-Bronx Senior Council, Bushwick Senior Council. Uh, we help support and fortify Meals for Wheels. As most now know, it's gonna be cut from the federal budget, right? So what's gonna happen with our aging? 
Um, and then our advocacy goes hand in hand. So as we have collective projects like the release of aging people in prison, we're also working to help service those aging in the community, right? So we have to say no to prisons, but yes to building communities at the same time. And it becomes a lot of work, <laughs> a lot of double work, but we have to do it, you know? Absolutely, and uh, I'm glad you touched on that. And uh, again, thank you for being here uh, with us uh, today, Five. I know your time is uh, precious, uh, so I really appreciate that. Um, so uh, if we could go back to this uh, point that you made about communities and what is required there, because a lot of people hear about, you know, uh, prison abolition work, but the component that gets, um, it, that needs more attention is the part where you're doing the work in the community, right? Yeah, and I think that people mix that up, you know, mm -hmm. Kim, and I think that that's the problem, right? One of the things is like, you can't abolish prisons, which tear apart communities without repairing and building communities. So it has to go hand in hand. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. You know, and there's no there's no real teeth to what you're doing if you're saying close down this jail and we have nothing to do with what happens to the people when they're released or mm -hmm. the people who they're going to, right? Mm -hmm. So functionally, and if you're about abolition, then you're about community building. Absolutely. Uh, because prisons tear down families, they tear down structures, they tear down communities, they tear down employees, they tear down neighbors, brothers, uncles, they tear families apart. Um, and it's because of the distance and the sort of isolation of human beings that we have become content with. Mm -hmm. And I say content with because we are satisfied with saying, if there's a problem, I'm going to call the authorities. I'm not going to make an effort as a community member to solve this in my community. I'm going to call a foreign attribute to come in right. and handle it. Right. Mm -hmm. So we are we have grown in this country in New York is a microcosmic example of the macro um, that we've grown content with out of sight, out of mind. So as long as that problem is out of sight, it's upstate somewhere. I don't see it. It's OK. Um, but incarceration impacts the community. Where was that person working? What was their house of worship? There were taxpayers in that community. They were also brothers and sisters and uncles. Mm -hmm. um, so we try to expose and create programming and uh, um, media as well that exposes the entire impact where one person is like a pebble. Mm -hmm. And once you throw that pebble in a river, it has a ripple effect that hits everyone, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The other, the other part I think is, is incorporating people who don't feel directly impacted because as much as work as we do to protect and serve people who are directly impacted there's other people who say i have no relation to prison and i say okay you're the one paying for it you're the one buying the products when people are released from prison you're mm -hmm. the one paying the high price in new york for people to live in shelters which is mostly people disenfranchised from prison right so mm -hmm. everyone's involved and like scott stringer who's like the state controller he says we pay the most for incarceration on rikers and other city jails more than anyone else on the planet earth of course he's saying that that's his job is to protect the financial interests of the state so we have used prisons and especially in new york state where we incarcerate per capita more than mostly anyone um we have used prisons as a sense of uh, of 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 contentment, but feeling secure. In other words, we don't feel safe unless someone else is there, you know, Absolutely. unless right. another entity, the cops are there. We don't feel safe to go outside and say, this argument could get out of hand, let's solve it together, or let me as a neighbor interfere with this. So I hear my neighbor beating his wife every night, I'm not gonna say nothing because the hood and the community's reputation is to stay silent. Like, no, we have to take things in our own hands because the outside authorities is only gonna make it worse. 
Absolutely, absolutely, and I'm uh, I'm glad you raised all of those issues. Um, can uh, you say a little bit more about um, this, uh, the indirect impact, uh, or the work that you're doing with people who are indirectly impacted uh, by right? We call it the collateral consequences. Yeah. Oh, collateral yeah, wow. consequences. Mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. Can, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. So, uh, well, one in New York State, and let me just say on that because I use New York as an example of the world, right? Mm -hmm. uh, nationally, we have over half a million people that are released from prison every year nationally. So that's normal, right? We know that people are going to be returning home. We know that there's a great amount of people returning home. Um, I say New York State because I started in New York State because it has been the defining state for the rest of the nation. People mm -hmm. tend to forget how America was populated. Everyone at one point in time came through Ellis Island, the majority, and settled up into the 50 states. More mm -hmm. so how New York, in a microcosmic example, people get cycled through Rikers and go to the 60-something counties to New York State, right? Mm -hmm. So you have Ellis Island and you have Rikers Island, right? So it's like these two examples of the prison industrial complex. Um, and then all of the products that are mostly made in other private prisons are sold in New York. Like Victoria's Secret has the most stores in New York. Mm -hmm. Like distributors for weapons and arms are mostly selling to New York. Uh, military gear that is made in prisons are also retailed in New York. So where it's not a problem, we let privatization become the answer. And when community is not the solution, privatization becomes the answer. So mm -hmm. I just said that uh, to say that we allow this because people aren't educated. And I think that that's where INC had started to make an impact of saying, let's assume nobody knows anything and start teaching people from a one-on-one -on -one basis. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that has made a huge impact. Absolutely. And I, um, Sorry, I think I derailed from the question. No, no, <laughs> it's, it's a great answer because I think it's, uh, it does illustrate how complex the problem is. And, you know, it, there are so many layers to this. And I really appreciate right. um, the parallels that you drew between Rikers Island and Ellis Island mm -hmm. and giving us, you know, a sort of a picture that we can, you know, draw from and say, okay, this is, you know, we're funneling all these people through Rikers Island and they're going out into these, you know, uh, various communities and whatnot. I think that's a really powerful um, way to think about it. Um, you have mentioned Rikers Island a couple of times, and uh, we all know, uh, and you more than most, uh, <laughs> what, um, you know, Mayor de Blasio's uh, move uh, about, what, last month to shut down Rikers over a 10-year period yeah. with the intent of opening up five new prisons. So I'd like to just right. get your thoughts about that. Oh boy. Oh man. So <laughs> this guy, right? <laughs> this so, guy, right? Yeah, right. So, you know, and Bill, he's, he's, and I, I have to say, uh, Mr. De Blasio or the mayor, um, uh, I've had a personal relationship with him since he's been elected, right? Mm -hmm. um, working on his behavioral health task force, all of the relations that we have, people assume like, oh, you know, the mayor, you're good with him. No, it's because I'm probably the greatest threat to him. I've probably been the greatest advocate in his face all the time about issues. So I'm going to be here for Hope Task Force be, by force, not because uh, he was like, you know what? We're going to think about the mental health of people in New York State. We're going to assign five. No, right. five is the one who's suing you if you don't do this, right? You're also not addressing immigration. So Khalil's on the immigration task force, like uh, Terrell Muhammad's on the juvenile task force. So these things 
are because people directly impacted has forced him to do that. The mapping meetings, which was all about how we arrest people with mental health was actually just so that I can work on people with mental health and Rikers not being processed, right? All of that should be, I should be able to speak to the mayor about his job and his duty preserving the citizens of the city, not by force. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when you see all of these things about Rikers, it's because for the last five years, students have been making the way. Organizations, um, like Jail's Action Coalition, which we created to sort of be the force uh, for people on Rikers. Um, we at every border corrections hearing. We have to then shape the board. Then we noticed the board wasn't doing what they were supposed to be doing. And then we also rechanged the board. Like, why is there not a woman on a board? Why is there not a woman of color on a board? Why is there not a person previously incarcerated on a board? Why is there not somebody with medical background on a board? So it took years to change that. Mm -hmm. It also took years of getting them to fight and open up public comment. And I think that that's where we made a change. So students were going in and writing reports about how horrible it was in New York. And when we got to like the ninth or the 10th school, the board started to react to it. And then they launched an investigation by Dr. Gillian. And then of course that went down the rabbit hole because nobody, no matter who goes into there, they're gonna realize how bad it is. So all of these things are not public knowledge, right? People don't know that mm -hmm. we have hearings constantly, that every time we close down a unit, they make a new one. They have made the enhanced security right. housing unit. And now they're making a young adult unit. They're like, hey, the governor says uh, kids, you know, we just ended incarcerating kids for 16, but he only pushed it up to 18. So we're going to start a new unit that starts at 18. Can we, can yeah. we actually, I just want to pause there because I the, the enhanced supervision housing unit that you just mentioned yes. I think is like a really, it was a, it was a really early on example, I think of the mm -hmm. way that sort of reform goes with Rikers Island and with the Department of Corrections and with Mayor de Blasio. And I was wondering if maybe you could just kind of briefly give us an overview of like what the issue is and how it turned out and how, you know, because I just think it brings a lot of this to light about, you know, where it, you it, it, it definitely does. And it definitely represents the consistent, persistent force of people directly impacted, right? and advocates behind them, but also organizations and mental health professionals. Absolutely. So like Urban Justice Center, I'm just gonna throw this out there, like Jennifer Parrish, she's amazing. She's the director for the Urban Justice Center Mental Health Project. And she's one of the lead advocates on Jail's Action and is there at every Board of Corrections hearing, every Department of Corrections hearing, and every City Council hearing. And it's because that's her job. That's her responsibility, but also she's committed to human rights. And if it was a violation that it doesn't enable her to do her job. Why are we not listening to the professionals? So when right. we talk about the coverage and the mental health training that correctional officers has, it's her organization that does those classes, her and Mary Beth. So she knows that you're not being trained, right? And also we have access into Brad H, which is another project. So we know what's going on on Rikers. And then we have the family members who are part of our collective. So we understand the facts of everything. The problem begins is that the system in itself doesn't want to admit to these problems, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So it becomes this battle of we have to constantly show wrong to show, I mean, show harm to show wrong, mm -hmm. right? We had three deaths that we had to petition the DA to take it seriously and then report him to the Department of Justice so they can go everybody's head and go in. Mm -hmm. Like, since I've been doing this work, I've indicted over 20-something correctional officers and Lily had a system to work and give information to the Department of Justice that was valid. Now that's nothing that the system can't do itself because they have the same records that I'm telling them to subpoena. Right. They have the same data that I'm pointing out exists. Game of hiding it and not wanting to make the change. Why? 
because they have 10,000 jobs that they think that they're preserving. Mm -hmm. They're trying to preserve an environment of necessity, mm -hmm. right? But if you look at the bigger picture, and I hate to keep going back to this, that one jail fills 60, 70 something facilities upstate. Mm -hmm. From that one jail goes everyone else. So they're responsible for sending human bodies, which other counties depend on for gerrymandering, for you know, loans and grants because of the amount of people they have in their state, or basically yep. because a county doesn't have any other income but the jail, all of those are actually available options, literally are producing an income of incarceration. So we have become the incarceration state. Like it's a business in Attica. It's a business in Kaksaki. It's a business in Auburn. And it's mm -hmm. actually why the town is named after the jail. Wow. Right? So mm -hmm. Rikers plays a pinnacle point of pressuring people to then be pushed up into these facilities. So they make it so horrible, so hard, and so bad there that people will cop out, right? Mm -hmm. So 95% of convictions are plea bargains. So that means incarceration is willful. Now, I don't want to drag this out into a derailment, but just that alone, let me just mm -hmm. say the effects of that. Now incarceration is willful. You come back from doing 15 years in Attica, guess what? You're considered not homeless because you've been in Attica for 15 years, right? So willful incarceration means that you are now not acceptable for homeless services because you're not considered chronically homeless. Wow. Wow. And the, the person who did that happens to own the shelter system, BRC, Muzzy Rosenblatt. The other person, Gordon Campbell, who works on the Board of Corrections. Wow, is that a coincidence? No, this is this city. Mm -hmm. And we're living in a city where we deliberately displace people of color. Remember redlining started in New York, mm -hmm. which other mm -hmm. states copied, right? So Absolutely. this is deliberate attacks on people of color. And I keep saying rankers because 80% of people are people of color. 80% of people in New York State prisons facilities, over 80% only come from seven communities, which is basically three counties. Mm -hmm. Sorry, six, six communities because Park Slope is totally gentrified, but there's a Brooklyn table in every prison. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Rikers is, is an example of how Cook County Jail in Chicago cycles a thousand people per night, right? It's also right. an example of like CCDR in California and other prisons who are like saying, you know what? I think we need to start making quadruple bunks because the triple bunks are just not doing enough. Or let's shut down the gym because we have 2000 more people coming in, right? right? And just put beds in there. So we have, and like Marty Horn, who's the ex-commissioner of New York, I think he's actually right. When you have 2 million people, you can't service one person right. You can't yeah. do nothing right. Exactly. Exactly. Sorry, I just went on a, a tangent there, but it's okay. You're you're allowed, yeah. and I uh, deeply appreciate you uh, sharing that um, as well. Um, yeah. I uh, wanted to touch on, or wanted you to touch on a little bit uh, about the visible voices that you mentioned earlier, and um, right. the effects of you know having to relive trauma um, in. Yeah as part of the work and you know uh th that is something that you know i struggle with um you know uh if someone who's impacted by what uh you know because my sons are in prison um exactly and uh you know it's it, so there's an expectation that if you are engaged in abolition work or prison reform work, that you're always, you know, you become a go-to person. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you, you know, you're expected to always have, you know, something to say or some insight or, you know, an action plan. And sometimes you just really don't 
freaking feel like it. Sometimes you just want to be like, okay, I want to shut off the TV. I'm going to shut off the computer and I don't want to be bothered. Um, so yeah. can you talk a little bit if you're comfortable um, about, you know, the effects of having to relive this trauma and the kind of work that you're doing around mental health? Yeah, it's, um, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard for me uh, to continue to advocate for things that I'm still going through, right? Mm -hmm. um, one of the toughest things is living with this disenfranchisement. So, so I've, I, I was incarcerated uh, in, a, in a late 90s, uh, 2000, went to jail um, because they were saying that I was transporting immense amount of drugs and I had huge uh, drug locations upstate in these counties and it, um, actually I was doing real estate and fixing up abandoned properties and I had a lot of cash on me. Uh, which has made me look guilty, right? Uh, because I had like $280,000 on me because I was doing real estate deals and a lot of it was cash. Mm -hmm. And when you're doing foreclosure under market value flips, I'm closing 10 deals with one investor. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to buy residual income property upstate and then open up and use that residual income to buy a building in New York to do reentry. So I've been doing this work for years with a sort of like 10 to 12 year gap with a prison system, sad to say. So uh, these cops who were who didn't have a drug problem in a, in a town, um, had to create a drug problem. Wow. Uh, and the FBI ended up indicting them for all of the charges that I was indicted on and basically, you know, uh, released. Um, wow. So what happened is you have a system. And when they asked the officers, like the, the entire precinct was locked up, like the shop steward, the Lieutenant Michael Hamilton, Nick Mezier, like the shop steward, the sergeant, the lieutenant, the captain, everybody. As a matter of fact, when the FBI ran into the precinct, like the desk sergeant just went in the bathroom and blew his brains out because <gasps> it became... Um a system that cops were creating crime, mm -hmm. right? When the war on drugs, when, when people don't understand, when, when Reagan cut community-based funding for mental health facilities, he also cut community-based funding for law enforcement. So mm -hmm. civil fortitude became the thing of the day, right? Like mm -hmm. you had to catch these drug dealers. And then they was using abandoned property to basically set up drug stings. Wait, I, here's this guy coming to take all of the abandoned property and renovating it and fixing it up and actually making it viable property. So I was disrupting their plan and then I had a lot of cash on me. So it just looked like something they could plan. Mm -hmm. um, the Innocence Project played a, a lot of roles in it because a lot of people were exonerated based on DNA evidence that these cops had proliferated. So that's why I work with them so closely because they're basically the reason why I'm home. Mm -hmm. But during my incarceration period, it was always trials and tribulations and struggles because I'm an activist, I'm an activist in prison. That's not the best place to be an organizer. And that's definitely not a place to be a person who is a community person. Mm -hmm. So even at Rikers, I worked with Otis to create the inmate liaison committee. And I took the people who were most empowered in every house and created a huge meeting where they were representing the entire jail system. Did that threaten the jail system? Yes, because now you have a sensible system that you can address everybody house needs in one meeting. They don't mm -hmm. want that, right? No, of course they don't. They, don't. Want, they want confusion. They don't yeah. want a unified system because then grievance comes in then mm -hmm. we're all not detainees, so why can't we vote this year? Like, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So it's become mm -hmm. these systems of demanding rights. And that is considered problematic. Just like community members who do free lunch program, right? Who are locked up for doing uh, domestic terrorism, right? Mm -hmm. uh, my mom went to prison just for that, for wow. doing after-school programming, creating the Southeast Bronx Neighborhood Community Centers. It was a bunch of Jewish women who came together and she was mailing products back to Israel. Right. That was considered a, a, a terrorist threat. 
Wow. Also, the women and women and children was a terrorist threat. Now that the state picked it up and calls it WIC, it's good. But, you know, Herman Bell and other people are still incarcerated for creating the free lunch and the WIC program. Indeed. So I just I just went back all the way that to say that even a person in my stature or what I was doing in life um, and I'd say to say that I didn't have bad experiences in life. Yes, I did. But when I was released uh, from incarceration, um, it was funny in some sense. It, and I try to make a joke out of it because it's not funny. Mm -hmm. But it's like they just ignored me for over 10 years and said, hey, five, uh, you know how you always been talking about you're innocent and you didn't do nothing. Uh, turns out you're right. They just locked up all the cops who locked you up. Here's $40. Here's a bus ticket. Uh, good luck. And make it, right? Mm-hmm. Point, um, I had spent a long time in solitary, held there for uh, basically frivolous deeds, yeah. and released directly into population, which is different, because I live in New York State, so I get a bus ticket to 42nd Street, Times Square. But mm. it's a difference when you come home and you're an advocate and you're talking about your circumstances. But when I was testifying and when I admitted that these officers were doing things wrong, the FBI then puts you under a witness protection program mm -hmm. and literally keeps you in prison, but will change your locations or basically alter your jail record because they think that they're protecting you, which me and Preet Bahara from the DOJ had a few conversations about. They think that they're protecting people, but actually I was like a hero in prison. Mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. People didn't really, like even correction officers were like, you lock those cops up? Like, yeah, that's crazy. Could they make us look bad? So either way, mm -hmm. it, it's sort of comforting, but it's also hard because then you have problems owning your history and your time. Indeed. Right? You know, because of how your prison records look, but the Department of Justice still works with me closely because they're like, you know what? The last time this guy pointed out bad cops, he was right. Mm -hmm. So now I'm working with them to basically work and indict correction officers, but everybody else who is in this system making it worse. And abolition work is on multiple levels. You have to be there for the family members, but also um, work for those incarcerated, their family members, right? Mm -hmm. Because when I was incarcerated, I have children, mm -hmm. you know? One of them is a daughter. Uh, she's going on 17 now, and I have no relationship with her. Uh, when you miss 12 years of a kid's life, you miss junior high school, elementary, and high school, you sort of miss a kid's whole life, right? You do, um, yeah. yeah. And it's impactful because uh, because I was doing real estate, um, my child support payments was $532 a week. Mm. That's hmm. a lot. Yeah, it's no, not a, that's a, yeah, that <laughs> yeah. is a lot. It's a lot because I was making 30,000 residual income when I was out, but now that I'm a prisoner <laughs> and now that I'm incarcerated, I'm making 16 cents an hour. So that times 12 years, I come home owing $150,000 and I'm still in family court today, still being threatened to send back to jail today, like literally. Wow. Um, and so my activism, this is the reason why I just said a lot about my time incarcerated, because my activism has been that since I've been home. So I took my own personal problems. I took things that I can relate to personally and then worked on that from an I standpoint. So one of the mm -hmm. first things that I realized was damaging in my life was when I was in upstate and I'm in a box, I come back down to Rikers for court, I'm in a box, mm -hmm. right? So uh, this, the point of old box time is the first one of the first bills that passed in New York City around solitary. Um, it was intro 292A. And the mayor, de Blasio, was, oh, yeah, you know, I think this is good. And what? What do you mean this is good? We can't holding people accountable? No, it's frivolous. Mm -hmm. So we have a mayor who doesn't have any expertise and doesn't listen to the experts previously incarcerated. 
he didn't change it until Councilman Trump pushed it and also showed how much money we're spending on it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that passed. And then from there, I was also writing and helping Alan Farrell with the Fatherhood Initiative, and we wrote the Parent Pledge. And I had this great idea because I'm like, look, I was doing this. I had a nightclub. I had 20 properties. I had a Porsche. I was driving around. I met this girl in the club. I went to prison. Mm. Turns out she's now pregnant and we have a I don't know her, though. We don't know each other. So can't mm-hmm. we create a program where nonprofits can be mediators? And we did. Now, don't get me wrong. It didn't help me in my situation because of the bitterness and the anger. I'm still in court. But at least now there's a project that allows people who didn't have time before incarceration to know each other to at least say, we have this child in interest. Let's dedicate our means for that. Wow. Wow. And yeah. And then coming home, I realized that, you know, 10, 12 years, a lot of things have changed. Right. There's no more of Susanna who has her baby shower in, in the community or there's a cookout outside or the birthday party barbecue. Right. Like that doesn't happen anymore because that's technically trespassing and you can't cook out on public property no more, nor in city housing, nor in government housing, nor in federal Mm. property. Right. So I came home to see a wasteland of like, where's everybody at? Everybody's outside. There's no music playing. There's no barbecues going on. Like, oh, no, man, I got to walk around with my Conrad bill because I got stopped 10 times in my own building. Like Mr. Rodriguez, who played dominoes on the corner, was locked up. And I remember going to court with him, with Vince Morin and sitting there looking at him like he was sitting there saying I was on the bench. And they were like, okay, but the bench is in the city street. He was like, no, it's attached to the building. It's bolted to the ground and I live in the building. Like, how am I trespassing sitting on the bench in the building I live in? And uh, so I started working with Vince Warren doing stop and frisk with Jose LaSalle. And that was because I was outraged about the community mm-hmm. and how it was under attack. And I wanted people to have the defense of defending themselves, not mm-hmm. teaching people how to fish, but you know, uh, not fishing for them, but teaching them how to fish. Indeed, indeed, yeah. wow. Wow. So that was just one, that was just one thing as well. Um, and I also started, so when I, then when I first came home on solitary note, the first person I started organizing and working with was uh, my father's friend, Robert King, who had just did 29 years in solitary. So I got an invite and it's like, Hey, you know, um, a friend of your dad's, he was a Panther. I'm a Panther. I'm doing this event. Come down. I come down to NYU and I meet this guy and I'm going off about my five years in solitary and I did all this time. And he's like, yeah, I just did 29. And I was like, what? And at at that point, I put the little pain and problems that I had in my pocket and I continue to do this work because there's always somebody who's suffering more that needs us to be the voice about. Right. Mm -hmm. And he he told me that it was me and him that nobody else is going to do this as serious as me and him. He told me he would take the West Coast and I would take all of the East Coast. He gave me a few films that he has made since he's been home. And he was like, let's do this and get out my two comrades out and also the longest people in solitary in the country. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, I have been working to advocate. I've done films, TV shows, productions, and we took Herman House and won an Emmy. And we continue mm-hmm. to use that to make another film. And we got Herman out. Mm-hmm. And then we got Albert out, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that the greatest thing in my work is that Albert was out at the end of the week. The beginning of that next week, he showed up in Harlem at my door. And wow. I was just shocked. Like, I was like, I was going to come see you. And he was like, no, let's get to work. Yeah, yeah. And so he's now on my board, you know, and we're now trying to address solitary nationally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I use my own personal circumstances. Like when I came home, here I am. I live with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. I'm being released. How am I being released? A bus ticket dropped off at 42nd Street, Times Square. Have a panic attack. Go to the hospital. Get mm-hmm. caught up. Parole tells me 
that's messed up. You should have been here that day. Turn around. They sent me back to prison. I didn't max out to 2012, came home, right? Oh, my God. That should never happen to anyone. No. So now my organization now is the only organization that goes down to the bus stations and pick up the roughly 2,000 people who are released by the year. And we're just standing outside with a giant sign with your name on it mm -hmm. to help escort you. And that's done in collaboration with the social work students of uh, uh, the NYU Silver School. So then we have a person to do psychosocials. You know why? When I came home, I had a weak prescription of the wrong medication. Let's just mm. understand this. They don't give you the right medication in prison mm. in the first place. So yeah. that means when I'm released, I got a weak, they give you a weak ration of the wrong medication. Jesus. So in order to come home, I need to have a psychosocial. I need to be evaluated. And I also need to have constant blood tests. Oh, wait, but it takes 45 days for my public assistance to kick in. So by oh, then I'll Lord. have a psychotic episode, right? So yeah. the, sy the system itself doesn't make sense. So what we do is we fill those gaps. So we just said, great, we'll get social work students to write psychosocials the day you come home. Mm -hmm. And we'll also submit it. And we also have a project with St. Luke's Roosevelt that is totally, solely dedicated for people previously incarcerated. So you come home that day, that night you're in the hospital or you're being checked and you have an appointment. Mm -hmm. That is called response. That is really literally supporting those coming home. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, but I used it as a track for my own self. Yeah. You know? Yeah, because I mean, the, the reentry piece, and this is something that, you know, my, my research and work has focused on uh, quite a bit. And uh, you know this uh, from, you know, uh, a few years ago when, when we first met. But um, what you describe in your own situation and uh, what I think I uh, listeners can sort of take away from this is the sense that reentry requires a very hands-on approach and an understanding that it's more than just opening the doors and letting people go home that right. reentry should not begin the day that you get out <laughs> no it has to begin the day you go in the day yeah. that you go in and if you have yeah. those community resources and if you have projects and programs and things like that that prevent people from going into prison right in the first right, place right, then right. you know we, we don't have to have that discussion but you know no. given the current reality we do have prison so when people go into prison that's when the reentry really needs to start is that right. you know identifying people's mental health needs providing the proper medication giving them you know uh counseling and things like that that these are not frivolous things, which is what people perceive them as, right? So people right. see, and you, uh, you, go ahead. No, no, I was gonna say that, you know, it, it's also changing uh, the terminology of reentry because mm -hmm. reentry is just like what you said. It's like the door is open, good luck. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Basically see you, when, see you when you get back, right? Um, <laughs> and reintegration is what people need. Reintegration is a longer process, right? Absolutely. When you look at the processes and when I say, let me just, like I said, I use my own life as a track. So let me just talk about that. Um, when I came home, I was right in the shelter. I was in Bellevue. I'm back in prison, basically. I'm in a 50-unit dorm, 50 men, three showers. And I am put myself in a corner so that I could avoid everybody else, like I'm in a cell again, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I had to be poverty pimped for a year in order for them to help me. So I stayed in the shelter for over two years. Wow. Um, and the shelter system is because, okay, legally, I'm medically disabled because of solitary confinement and mental illness. So legally, I'm disabled. 
but I don't qualify for disability housing because I'm a felon. <laughs> so it's like this contradictory issue that I use as a backing to create housing. So the building that I live in, which is a, a 15 floor building full of studios, is the building that I built. So I only live in the solution. I would have never had a solution if I didn't put myself out there. If exactly. I didn't, if I didn't apply myself to be a case study to the top sites on the planet to create the congressional hearings, to be at legislative hearings, to get the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, mm -hmm. to look at solitary, to do all of these things, to produce the research to say, why am I still homeless? Why is me and my child still sleeping on the street? Don't get me wrong, four or five years later, I've been home. I'm still in that housing. Mm -hmm. The Corporation for Supportive Housing still hasn't gotten the units from the governor. Um, I'm still stuck in a sort of poster boy situation because there's only one building that they approved for felons with HUD. Wow. Out of the out of the millions of buildings in New York City. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So here it is. The mayor can talk about, yeah, we got five on our behavioral task force and people who are directly impacted are sitting at the table. Yeah. But that person is living off of SSI, is not being meaningfully employed and literally still suffering because I live in a studio with three kids. Are you serious? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So these are the conditions. And most of us advocates need advocates. Indeed. I had a friend Absolutely. of mine who was advocating for people and he was facing deportation and he's mm -hmm. advocating for people. Right. I had people mm -hmm. who are going through cases and living in a shelter, but they have to put on a mask and we have to put on this mask as post incarcerated leaders because we're not funded. The only way I can get funding is if I talk about building more jails or the only way I can get funding is if I'm talking something that's going to be attractive for the system. Absolutely. So total abolition doesn't get supported. So we have created grassroots systems. Right. We have farms. We have wineries. We do everything that we can to create a system of self-employment and self-stability uh, mm -hmm. uh, be because we're not going to get grants and RFPs to abolition of prison. But us previously incarcerated and post-incarcerated leaders have to keep our foot on the backs of legislators. This is why we organize lobby days and create legislative efforts. But this is also why I've grown to found um, the nation's largest student group, the Student Alliance for Prison Reform. Mm -hmm. um, when I first came home, my first group was in Princeton, Princeton Spear. And then students from Spear had went to Harvard and created a national umbrella. And since then, I'm like in every, every state. Mm -hmm. And also PD Green is up under that. Amnesty, the national chapters are up under that. And how does that make a difference? The students that we inspire, we teach the students on the conditions and the collateral consequences of co incarceration. And these are the students who go into prisons and teach. These are the students who are in the law classes who are then going to write the legislation that we need. Mm -hmm. I just had my students at Yale finish their legislation draft the bill, right? And have the senator push it and went right through committees. Mm -hmm. this, these are things that affect their future. So mm -hmm. it's like, I feel like an older advocate fighting older advocates. And the only other people on my side is the younger people who realize the world is going down a very bad course. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I also think that it's, it's only strong when people like me are supported by others. Because Absolutely. Most of the people coming out of prison never touched a computer in 10 years, don't even know what a website is, and you say HTML, they think it's two dorms and a bed number. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right. I was talking to a guy who got out the other day, and I was like, no, nah, you got to have an HTML number. He was like, I got my DIN number. And I was like, what? <laughs> and it's just the lack of you know, technology, yeah. but right. together we're powerful, right? Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think INC has created this sense of what we call incorporated. And that's why we're nicknamed incorporated because we work together and try mm -hmm. to create solutions together. We build statewide coalitions to statewide services, you know?
Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So one of the things that um, this conversation is bringing to light for me uh, is, you know, one that as an example for people, um, you know, your life's work uh, is tremendous. Uh, and, and I can't think of anyone else, um, even in activist circles that, you know, would even come close uh, oh, wow. to touching that. No, seriously. Um, in terms of having, you know, an, a, a real impact uh, across the board here. Um, and, you know, on the other hand, I, when someone hears this, I don't, I, I don't know, and maybe you can talk about this a little bit, um, the, the difficulties and the challenges that you've experienced, even though you have resources at your disposal, even though you have access um, you know, in, uh, you know, at City Hall and other places that you have struggled tremendously and that you're yes. still <laughs> dealing with so much of the effects of incarceration, right? Yeah. And I want, I want people to really understand how difficult that is. And, you know, like you, I've, I've written about this from, you know, from my perspective and my experience that even with, you know, because people think, oh, well, you know, you were well positioned, you've written about these things, you got a PhD and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And they think that, you know, somehow these things save you from the anguish and the pain and, you know, the, the retaliation and all of the other nonsense that you have to deal with on a daily basis. Right? Yeah, and I'm glad you framed it under that time frame because it is literally a daily basis. Mm -hmm. You know, it is. And it's <laughs> yeah. like the, the like, economic, you know, um, problems that you have to deal with as a yes. result of this, which so you know, let me just give you an example. So I was yeah. I was at Section 8 the other day speaking with some supervisors because they constantly keep trying to cut me off of Section 8. And they constantly keep trying to cut me off of uh, my Social Security disability benefits. Why? Because they pull me in and say, hey, you know, we seen you on TV with the governor talking about raise the age. And the governor said that you works with him. Really? Um, I don't work for him. I work with him. I work with the Corporation for Supportive Housing. I'm on the anti- uh, torture initiative. I'm on the subcommittee against torture at the UN. I'm on the U.S. Commission for Human Rights. I'm also a human rights scholar at Columbia University. I teach at Columbia. I go to Columbia. I work with NARCRAT, National Religious Campaign Against Torture, the Congressional Campaign Against Torture, right? I do all of this work for nothing, Kim. I don't get paid from any of it. No mm -hmm. one compensates me. Maybe a little honorarium here and there, $100 for speaking or something. None of that is really substantial. When people talk to me, and I had this article the other day, the media person was like, but you work with the mayor, right? And I'm like, yes, with and not for. And they was like, well, aren't you paid? Like, no, <laughs> none of us are paid. Yeah. And they're like, so people mm -hmm. assume that somehow I'm getting funding so that I'm paid. And people think even the work that I do at INC that I dedicate my life to, I don't get paid for that. Nobody well, pays me. Yeah. I don't have a paycheck. Exactly. And, that's, and so how am I able to operate? When people ask me to come to events or do something, it's like, okay, how am I getting there? How are you getting a metro mm -hmm. car? How am I feeding my child? How am I putting mm -hmm. food in my house, right? Me and my son, people don't even understand that. I live off $180 in food stamps a month. And it's me and my 13-year-old son, right? Because we're still stuck in a system of non-stability. You see, for exactly. people of color, like my son, my oldest son says, for people of color, stability means, oh, 
we don't have to, you know, we can pay a rebuild every month. Like, ooh, we're stable. Like, most people are like, ooh, we're rich when they win the lottery. For us, it's like, ooh, we're stable. Because mm-hmm. we're used to struggling. We're used to juggling the Con Ed bill for rent, and which is more important, right? Exactly. exactly. And, the av- and activist life is even harder because everybody comes to me for something. Indeed, Nobody comes to five and say, how can I do for you, five? Or what can I do for mm-hmm. you? People come because they need help. They need assistance. I got people come out of the prison. They need money to get home today. How are they going to eat today? Like, mm-hmm. literally, uh, we have to create systems of keeping people, human beings, alive. Food, mm-hmm. clothing, shelter, the things that you need coming home is hard to get. And then once you're home, you're advocating for others. You're not getting paid for that advocacy. There is mm-hmm. no system of support for people. Mm-hmm. You know, the reason, let me tell you something. The reason why I did most of the work that I did when I came home is I'm just going to put it out there. Jennifer Parrish from Urban Justice Center from Jails Action used to buy me a Metro card every month. Like, here's mm-hmm. a Metro card. Until I realized she was doing that out of her own pocket. And mm-hmm. I was like, I felt bad. I couldn't accept it no more. But that was really the sole reason why and how I got on the train every day. Yeah. Right? And people didn't and realize to takes. start. Yeah. And then and we that's started. that's what it takes. And, yeah. and I don't think that, like you said, people don't realize no, that, don't. you know, the impact is long term. And that right. this yeah. is the punishment also, continues. you know, intergenerational. And they, you know, people get the wrong impression when they see, you know, when you're visible, right, that visibility somehow translates into money in the bank. No, it it doesn't. You know, like they they think that, you know, you're like an Instagram model, like, okay, all of a sudden (laughs) you're like a a brand ambassador for abolition. And, you know, you got sponsors who are coming and saying, okay, well, you know, talk about this and we're going to give you money. And that's not the way it works. Right? No, it doesn't. That, it doesn't. You're suffering long term, and oftentimes you're suffering quietly. And we want that from activists. Like this is, you know, Brian and I had a conversation about this earlier, but also, right. you know, you touched on it as well um, about the unpaid work. And I think that that's something, you know, we can touch on it today. But I'd love to have you back um, as well to talk about this, you know, a little bit more because I think it. I think it's important to address it. You know, no, it is. Um, but, but, the but, idea that you know the work should just be unpaid. We do the work because it's necessary to do the work because we don't. You know, at least for me, I don't see where else right now I, I could give my life meaning not doing this. Right. right so right. in helping, you know, like I, I'm using myself and I'm putting myself out there in a lot of ways that are uncomfortable as hell for me. Yeah. Um, and I do it because it's like, okay, if I'm struggling and I'm visible and I'm vocal and I have access and, you know, I'm connected, Jesus, this is going to be so much more difficult for people who don't have any of these things. Right. Right. Now, this is my this 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 is one of my problems and one of my tremendous, tremendous problems. I'm doing this work right uh, to be able to create change. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I'm like so defeated and like like I'm tired of this, then change happens and it realizes that, you know, what I've done was worth it. Mm-hmm. Now, even though there's no pay involved, it has been success. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I started teaching in universities was because I had a relationship with the professors. And they was like, hey, I wanted you to come talk to my class. And in our class, they was like, next thing you know, the next professor's calling me. The next professor's calling me, right? And um, Yale had called me to come teach a class one day. And they were like, you know, my students didn't even have money. 
And in the beginning, our students didn't have money and they were like, look, we want to learn about these things because these are things I want to be a prosecutor. I want to go to I want to go to law school. I'm going to social work, all these different sort of next generation fields of jobs. And they're coming to us to say, we want to learn about this. We want to learn about this. And so in all of our offices, you'll see like uh, or if you look online and sort of follow us on Twitter, you'll see coffee mugs and how we brag with it right we call it mugging each other <laughs> and it's because the students only afforded to give us coffee mugs so like you'll see a post and i'll like tag terrell in it like drinking a cup out of yale <laughs> right or harvard or princeton it's because we felt that they needed to learn that because we were in mm -hmm. prison on the other end the other mm -hmm. thing is that these are the students who then were going into prison and teaching so we merged with them to create educational curriculums based off our experiences so now they're educating people with empathy, but also understanding that what they can do action-wise can furtherly damage somebody. Like, don't send your students, if you're a tutor in school, you can't send a person pictures or simple mm -hmm. things like that would end up being catastrophic. Yeah. So yeah. if I didn't do that, like they say, hey, can you come out and teach? I'm like, yeah, you know, I got to get paid. I'm an expert. I've been doing this. I got like a PhD in cruel and unusual punishment and a master's in torture, right? So <laughs> let, me come, let me and an associate in prison life, right? So right. let me come teach your class. They're like, yeah, it's going to take us about three months to get the honoranium and then we can sort of get this going. It's like, I don't need money. Oh, cool. What are you doing Thursday? Right. So I've taught in every school. Like mm -hmm. I've taught in like the 26 CUNY schools in New York alone, like wow. huge. And then it, it paved the way so that now people are being invited guests. When we was at conferences, we wasn't invited. That's why we have, like you see in most of our offices, a huge thing of name tags that we keep hanging up because those are the conferences that we showed up talking about, yeah, you talking about prison? Like, what's up? And then we mm -hmm. sit down, mm -hmm. <laughs> we, we include ourselves in those. So mm -hmm. everything we've done has been by force. And I don't mean to say that to create this sort of negative environment, it just tells us that if we don't do it, it's not going to happen. Absolutely. So that weighs Absolutely. on me. And that weighs but on me every day. But I feel right? like we, we can also take uh, these, you know, major institutions to task as well, because, you know, Princeton, oh, no. Yale, yes. Harvard, you know, and the rest of them, they got money. They got oh, yeah, money. Yeah, yeah. I no, mean, so don't like, get me wrong. We just did a whole know, conference there and they raised the money for that. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. And yeah. it's it. But it's it, it speaks to, you know, the fact that the bulk of the emotional work, the labor um, that's required in this space to really create change is coming at the expense of people like you yeah. um, and, and people like me who, you know, have chosen in a lot of cases to say, OK, um, yeah, you, it, you know, it would be nice to get paid. Right. But this is my lifestyle. I'm going to do and, this. Yeah. And I, you know, and, and I recognize that if I don't do it, you know, it might be some BS, you know, that, <laughs> that happens yeah. as a result of me not being there. Right. Right. And, right. And, and I feel that, you know, in that way, I have that sense of responsibility and duty, but it also weighs on me because I'm like, okay, uh, opportunity costs, right? Something. Right, but we also live in a country that me and you both understand, you probably more than me with the cultural uh, um, um, levels of understanding that you have. Um, we have to show harm in order to show wrong in this country, and that's the problem, right? Absolutely. I just can't say people previously incarcerated need to sit at the table. I got to do 50 fucking, excuse my language, 50 demonstrations to show you that we need to be there. I have to do 50 events for people to show you that you be there. One mm -hmm. of the greatest and saddest situations, I'm going to put this out there, so I was working with Apple, um, Google, of course, Chicken and Egg, The Mill, and uh, uh, this other company called The Mill. 
to create a six by nine virtual reality app. Now I have been working on a VR app for like about five years now. I could, there's a project that me and Angad Bahala did years ago that Harry, that Gina Belafonte helped sponsor and put through. Uh, we had money from the Canadian government. So we created this whole Angola prison virtual reality website. And it didn't really work because, you know, the technology wasn't there. So mm -hmm. here Google, Google and um, Chicken and Egg and Guardian, all these people come into the picture with the technology. And I'm like, this is what I'm trying to do. So I pitched them the project. They go for it. But they wouldn't let me write the story. So they said that they would hire another person. So great. Now I had to go find a nice white person for them to hire, which I did. Mm -hmm. And they hired this person who wrote the articles. And then they were like, well, you know, this is going to cost us about 250000 to make. And we can make money back off of it. And we probably could offer you like maybe a dollar or INC a dollar. Oh, great. Because if a million people download it, I'll be straight. Uh, when that, oh, we can probably do that like 2021 or oh, 2000. God. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like the problem is now, you know what? Forget it. I don't need to make money. Oh, cool. We'll launch on Friday. So wow. now I have a wow. national app that I can use that I can strap to legislators head about solitary but I don't make a dime off of it. But people have to relive yeah. trauma. And then I did three months of articles with The Guardian and didn't get a dollar or paid off of anything mm -hmm. because I had to put the issue out there. Now, yeah. for me, it doesn't put a dollar in my pocket. But when I show up to Congress and they're like, that's the guy from the centerfold from The Guardian. Mm -hmm. And he also did three months of articles. So be careful because he may make your ass the next article. <laughs> it, it plays in my favor, right? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. When I get yeah. Jake, I mean, yeah, he, when, yeah. We defer, you know, we we defer the the monetary compensation for. But Kim, I'm deteriorating. I'm dying, yeah. Kim. Like and I'm we, literally. I had a total knee replacement. I had a car accident. When Brian see me, I didn't even have my dental surgery yet. Yeah. I don't even want to tell him that I still haven't had it because I still haven't even put the time away to do it. Wow. So it's like I'm doing so much that I'm deteriorating, and yeah. I need to then focus on me. But then when mm -hmm. I do that, they're like, I'm, I'm ready to go on vacation. I'm like, I'm trying to go to California. My psychs do it. Gracian, excuse my language, and he was saying this, but his wife had passed away. So he was like, hey, come up to Cali for a week. Come hang with me. I'm ready to leave. And they're like, hey, the governor just signed your bill. Like, what the hell? Right. So progress right. comes. It just draws you back in. I feel like Al Pacino yeah. trying to get out. Right. Of the <laughs> um, trying to get uh, out. What was that movie about the Bronx? And he's trying to get out. And he's like, they just pull me back in, right? Pull you back in, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I hear you. I hear you. Like, Everything I'm, I'm going to say this again, resonates. too. And even when we're doing the production part, people don't even know. Like, Harry Weinstein and Jay-Z didn't pay the family until the Monday before the series aired. And they agreed to give the family some compensation because they just want to use people's narratives. So Akeem had looped in this huge email who works side by side with our organization, Akeem Browder, the father, before the mother had passed away, was also the mother. And we had to like threaten that. We had to threaten Jay-Z to like expose the fact that you're not going to pay the family for basically profiting off their trauma and pain. Now, yes, we need the story to be out there, but won't you morally do the right thing? Right. Well, and and this, yeah. Again, this issue, and we're we're definitely going to do uh, an episode about this. Like I said, Brian and I were talking about this earlier today um, about this, you know, uh, sense that activists uh, should, you know, suffer and live in poverty, and you know, that yeah. that's part of the work. And it's like most of us are doing, you know, a good majority of this work uncompensated. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, like I'm living in LA, 
you know, uh, Brian's uh, up uh, in Northern California. And, you know, this this is an expensive market yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be living yeah. in. Yeah, but I live in the most expensive yeah. city in the world. Yeah, but you exactly. have to be there to do the work, right? Exactly. So it's, it's like. You have to be there, but then it's, it's also like, okay, well, I mean, I have, you know, I have lawyers that need to get paid. I have, you know, to buy food. I have to put gas in my car. I have, you know, my own medical you know, things that need to be addressed and things like that on top of sending money in, you know, to my sons on a monthly basis and buying them books and things like that, that will keep them, you know, um, that will keep them connected. Right. Mm -hmm. And all of these things matter. So when, you know, it's, I I certainly want to talk about that part of it a little bit more, but um, I want to switch gears uh, briefly here and um, see if I can get some of your thoughts. So you said you've been working with the DOJ for a while, the Department of Justice. And Mm -hmm. um, since, you know, uh, Jeff Sessions was appointed. uh, Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's, it's crazy, yeah. Um, I, you know, I'm anticipating a lot of changes or a lot of nothing happening and a lot of undoing things that have been, you know, going on, including, you know, uh, the data gathering that we have relied on. And I know as a social scientist, you know, that that data has been uh, important for me in my work and in terms of, you know, amplifying uh, the the problem and and bringing that to light. Mm -hmm. So I'd just love to get your thoughts about, you know, what this new um, administration, you know, so it, it, it's going to be a huge step back, right? And the step back comes in the, the aspect that they were looking into doing investigations. So the Department of Justice is supposed to take claims, but also claims with slight evidence or anything that seems probable into an actual factual possibility and investigate it, right? How is that going to change? I believe in the current climate, we're not going to have those pre-investigation funds or the ability to do that until it's something concrete that actually happens. So until another uprising at this facility or until another disaster, they're not going to be able to go in. And the sad part is that us people previously incarcerated were just getting into the White House, right? Mm -hmm. When I got to the White House and I got the pink pass and the armed guard, I didn't make a big deal about it. But um, Glenn went in like a week after me and he was like, I'm not going to tolerate this shit. And I was like, dude, they're going to give you a pass. It's going to be like an armed guard because you're a felon. And he's like, no, we have to say something about this. And he made a huge issue about it. The president addressed his letter, invited him back, right? So, like, that also, like, Dow Ackerson, who's on And when you're talking uh, about Glenn, you, you mean Glenn Martin? Yeah, Glenn Martin, right, right. So, okay, so, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Uh, Glenn Martin from Just Leadership, but also has uh, another collective that he worked education inside out and a whole bunch of organizing. So I said that, that his leaders weren't let in, right? We had mm-hmm. the Women Association, the National Women's Council of Formerly Incarcerated Girls and Women had a symposium at the White House. They were doing the Women World thing. I'm on a lawn with a virtual reality, the FS, the SX, the South by South lawn. None of that's going to happen again, right? Because mm-hmm. the people who were in position have all been pushed out. So I mm-hmm. think that the new administration being Republican strong, of course, and Sessions being <laughs> in charge there is definitely going to be no preliminary investigations and they're only going to look at cases that is actual like happenstance already. So I have mm-hmm. a case where a person was murdered in Fishkill. That went from them investigating other issues to them just working on that because it was a death. 
So we're going to see a stark change where corrections are going to be able to hide a lot more, a lot easier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's honestly what's going to happen, you know? Um, on a national level, that will impact the support, but I think it's going to agitate. And what we have to do as activists is use that as a means to get people to work together more, to say mm -hmm. we can't rely on the government. We, can, we have to take this as personal accountability. So what we have been doing was creating statewide collectives, right? We have the, one of the biggest problems of being a national activist is that a national organizer, you have 50 different states. Mm -hmm. So what works in New York is not going to work in Washington state or Colorado or start different states, right? So we have to create statewide collectives in each state that can address those issues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because mm -hmm. Sessions is gonna roll us back, but just like, it's not him, it's, 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 it's the top of the line. Like we have, and I hate to keep saying this because it seems like an ill reality, Donald Trump as the president of the United States of America. Like there is gonna be no progress unless we super force it. If you think it was hard before with a few rallies, Absolutely. it's gonna be even harder now, right? Right. Absolutely. And at the same time, like, I wonder if you have anything to say about, I mean, you know, your own work has been focused, um, has been focused intentionally locally, because like you were saying, like, what happens, what works in New York isn't going to work in Florida, the systems are different, the incentives are different. Um, and a lot of this, you know, there's a lot of focus that's paid to the federal level. But a lot of this is going on, you know, a lot of the, the, the most horrendous abuses are going on at the sort of the local city state level. Um, so, so yeah, I don't know if you have any sort of comments on the importance of, you know, keeping your focus local instead of, uh, you know, focusing too much on the federal level or anything like that. So we have to do both. And I hate to say like it's more work for me, Brian, but it is, but I have to do both. I have to attend the federal level local, the macro, but also the micro is what the healing happens, right? So right. we have to then also work with the Quakers and the National Religious Campaign Against Torture because they have a huge integrated church system to then work with college students and community organizers and the poor to create right. systems of support. Like the bus stops that we have in New York State, they cut out the prison visits. So there is no more state facility visits that are paid for by the state, compensated or allowed by the state. Oh, what does wow. that mean? Yeah, when the public is out of the question, what happens, Kim? Mm -hmm. Privatization becomes the yeah, answer, right? Absolutely. So then you have these tour bus companies who can charge $150 a visit. So what mm -hmm. do we do? We take buses, we convert the diesel engine to peanut oil and the students strain the peanut oils in the schools, like at Columbia, they give us the peanut oil. And then we have solar panels on the roof and a Freedom Food Alliance, the project that Herman Bell built, literally does free prison visits. So then we're able to say, if you're a member of INC, your family will come visit you. We can give free visits. We give you food to go home. And you can even pay for all of that with the food stamps. So wow. the purpose of creating projects that are actually are supporting are real projects, but it only makes sense to do that other people aren't doing. I just mm -hmm. had this huge thing in Philly that we're doing and a block party and the ACLU had coughed up some money to create a voter registration. All right, you wanna do a voter registration? Great, let me get the five top hottest artists in Philly. I'm gonna throw a concert and then we just charge people to register to vote to get into the concert. Mm -hmm. Yeah, instantly 15 to 20,000 people registered awesome. to vote. Wow. Yeah, it's happening next week. <laughs> right? nice. so like, it, it's a so simple awesome. solution. It's a mm -hmm. simple solution yeah. and it's like, you know, People directly impacted see those solutions. So when it comes to the prison system, we see the solutions that are the real problems. Like I remember coming home and arguing with the Correctional Association about how they thought there was hot water and cold water in prisons. How are you the oversight for the state and you don't even know that there's nothing but cold water in prisons? Like you just think we got hot water and could take little baths. And Like no, I lived out of a bucket. What are you talking about? Like we live like animals in prison because of the inhumane conditions 
So the first people that do oversight should be the first people that we address. Mm -hmm. Why are you not looking at this, right? Mm -hmm. How you've been monitoring prisons, writing an 80 page report about Atticus. I could just sum that up in two words. Close that shit down. Right. Like it's terrible. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I don't need Jack right. Beck. Well, don't get me wrong. I love Jack Beck. But Jack Beck writes 80, 90 pages articles about something that's simple. It's torture. Let's stop doing it. We're damaging people. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take 80 pages yeah. to describe that. You know why? Yeah. Because they are reformists. Yeah. Reformists well, yeah. are different from abolitionists. Reformists Absolutely. are saying, Let's, we need prisons, but let's make it that it's palatable and digestible because mm -hmm. it's, it's not hum inhumane, it's not humane in any way, but right. let's make it a digestible. What yeah. that is, is validating the system that says, you know what? We just need to lock up the bottom 10% of society, like the poor people in America, like the bottom 10%, you know, they're yeah. just ex the extra Americans, they're just extra mm -hmm. people. As a matter of fact, if we could make money off of locking them up, we'll be better off for it. And mm -hmm. we've replaced slavery with a system of incarceration, but the needs for incarceration are validated through the injustices of people of color and oppression on certain communities of color, right? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Because when we react to it, it's like, oh, look, this is why we have prisons. Oh, mm -hmm. this is why we need jails, right? No, if we had absolute human rights, I had an argument with a congresswoman the other day and she was like, yeah, we have equal rights in America. And I'm like, that's funny that you're a woman and you said that <laughs> because uh, I would at least say when women had equal voting rights, but that was only like 70 years ago. So like the two women in my building is older than American rights. And wow. I'm sure you're getting paid as much as the man next to you. Oh, you're not, mm -hmm. right? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Right. there's equal rights, right? So. I think it's an illusion. And then when it comes to incarceration, what it is different about people previously incarcerated is that through our leadership, we have used our own traumatic experiences to be the example of the problem, right? Mm -hmm. I've used my own mental health abuse and deterioration to show this is a problem for others. I've used my own homelessness to create housing for others. I've used my own personal problems within the movement to create solutions for others. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of times we forget about us. And Absolutely. so advocates, like you said, we suffer in these pockets that nobody know. Like yeah. people just figure I'm being paid. I work like five. Yeah. You have like five offices in New York. Yeah. Right. I don't get paid for, I don't, I don't get paid. I have no yeah. salary. I make yeah. no money. And I do this because it has to be done. But yeah. I have 86 bills on my desk right now and half of them are gonna pass. Nice. And that's just in New York alone, right? I have a yeah. bill in every state on solitary. Like, so we're creating change and it's at the cost of our own mental stability, our own traumatic sense of staying alive. Imagine teaching a class about solitary and reliving that every day. Yeah, I mean, it's like I, I, I was tweeting uh, out something the other day after um, hearing about Jordan Edwards and, you yeah, know, another um, tragedy. Just, you know, decided finally to, you know, publicly uh, say that I'm definitely suffering from, you know, PTSD. Um, and as I was typing that, and I tweeted this as well, that, you know, my heart was racing, my palms were sweaty, like I was really, you know, having, you know, going through it in that moment. And it's, and that's real, because every time, you know, every time something like this happens, every time there's, you know, um, talk of another, you know, prison rebellion, every time, you know, um, something happens with, you know, the police or with COs or what have you, um, these things have a real impact, right? And it, it, our work 
may have an impact for on other people and we do that work because we're choosing to do that work but at the same time we also need to recognize that it comes at a cost and yeah, that does. we are not necessarily you know helping ourselves by helping you know and in, in doing all of this work so if you're still in a precarious living situation five plus years after release and you've created housing you know security for other people but you're still housing yeah. insecure Man. like yeah. you know like we need to we need yeah. to highlight those contradictions because i yeah. think that yeah. you know i i hear this um you know i've had folks say this to you know, they think that you know somehow i'm balling and you know things are cool and you know like i have a, a ton of money and and whatnot and it's like no actually the opposite of that is yeah true. i'm actually even more poor like i'm you actually know? even um, like struggling well because it makes it difficult i mean again brian and i were just having this conversation earlier it's like it makes it difficult for you to um and you have to stay in this work right because you know it's like where are you going to go work you know you can't get a traditional job once you come out and say you know abolish prison yeah it's not I mean, happening <laughs> and then nobody's paying yeah. you nobody's paying you to do abolition work let's just say that so nobody is like, paying you for that when, yeah, no, these reform event. organizations need the reform, you know, to keep funded. Well, and, and the reform organizations, and, you know, this will be um, our, our final two questions um, here. I'd love for you to say a little bit about, you know, you, you touched on it already about reformists and, you know, prison reform as opposed to prison abolition. But I want you to uh, say a little bit more because, you know, this is something that, um, it, I, I've highlighted uh, on several occasions um, that, you know, the reform movement, you know, wants to maintain and preserve the status quo. They want to make minor changes, and, but, you know, for the most part, everything else pretty much stays the same. There's no deep interrogation of whether we need, you know, prisons in our society. Right. Um, I'm going to give you two examples really quick. One um is something super everybody sort of familiar about so the governor said um about solitary hey i'm gonna address it after we sued him right um so reform was that uh before he agreed to some adjustments you used to get 12 years mandatory for anything that's described described not proven as a weapon from corrections okay that's great but the reform is from 12 years to now 10 years 11 months are you <laughs> so no is it so, like yeah so all of the no it is a joke the whole process was a joke so that means that you're taking like two steps back from every rule you're not changing nothing you're not implementing nothing you're not impacting or changing people's lives right now and it's it's the brick by brick process because it's like it's going to help a little bit but not a lot but we have to continuously do both and i think that's where it comes from right the opposition has support has funding has a life has salary has vacation time. The opposition has always more resources than we do uh, because they are profiting off of what they do. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's where my concept has changed to try to create businesses so that we can profit, at least be self-sustainable off of the things that we do. Like mm -hmm. we have a t-shirt print shop, right? Why nobody hasn't done this before just boggles me, but why are we constantly ordering from China and all these different, like I know a hundred organizations they can now order their t-shirts through us and help employ people previously incarcerated. Mm -hmm. We have a paralegal business. Why nobody has their own paralegal business? How many damn bills and pieces of legislation are we going to write before we open up our own lawyer firm, right? 
So right. we need to start creating self-sustainability in order to make this fight happen. And I think mm -hmm. that that's going to take ingenuity, but take everybody on board. But it's also an example of how drained we really are. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a difference between abolition and reform. Reform was me every year going to the National ACLU conference and cursing out all the lawyers, like always, and I'm famous for, <laughs> because I'm tired of them taking the bills that I make or that we make that would actually end prisons and then litigate them, right? So they're litigators. Mm -hmm. um, abolition is when, like, two years ago, they literally came to us and said, we're not litigating no more, mm -hmm. right? That was also the year that they got $50 million in funding mm -hmm. for everything but solitary. Mm. think about that right mm -hmm. it's the minute they said that they're going to fight to end solitary they cut their funding to solid to work on solitary issues mm. right so the system itself is existent these are people's jobs because of the prison system right yeah abolition yeah. is when i'm not trying to do prison mitosis right mm. i love glenn martin i'm just going to say this i love him to death he's a great man he's helped so many people but his position is close Rikers and build more jails. You mm -hmm. hide it by saying build communities, but you really mean community-based jails. Right. Mm -hmm. And you really say close Rikers, which closing doesn't mean shutting it down. It's, it's meaning that you're closing something, but opening something else. You're shifting. Else. Yeah. You're shifting the population. And you know, that's not, it's what I described um, a few episodes ago is, you know, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Right. It's it, you're really not doing anything. You know, it's still a sinking ship. And, well, to, and you're slowing things down to a certain degree, because then politicians can turn around and say, OK, well, we did it. Uh, you know, we, we can wipe our hands of this. And, you know, maybe another generation goes by before or, or like you guys were saying earlier, like another rebellion has to happen or something sorry. awful. Some tragedy has to happen in order uh, to get things moving again, you know. So I, I almost think that it's not just kind of like it doesn't do anything. It just it, it almost like is more harmful because we're fooling ourselves into thinking uh, yeah. that that progress is being made. We're just punting the issue. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And with, like mm -hmm. it's going to lead to a bottleneck of, like you said, another uprising, another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because these beds is like, you know, in these new jails that they're going to spend a billion dollars on in New York City, if not more. I mean, what? What, what project in New York City has stayed on budget, let's be honest. Um, but, you know, these are beds, these are jobs that are going to need to be filled. Uh, and once they're there, it's going to be so hard to pull them back, to peel them back. Yeah. Um, Sorry about that. that but, yeah. And you're telling me that you couldn't, like, there's not, a, you know, better places to spend a billion dollars in New York City to head off incarceration and to invest in communities, like... You know, that's well, yeah, I mean, you'd have to ask if, you know, people are really interested in investing in communities and ending incarceration. And we have the clear answer to that is, you know, a resounding, you know, no, they're not interested in that. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I'd like to wind this down. And um, the last question that we have for you is, um, you know, what does prison abolition mean to you? So you talked a little bit about what reform is, but, you know, can you give us? Um, yes. A, just tell us what you, how you see prison abolition. Prison abolition to me is by any means necessary. That means I'm in the room when they're talking about legislation that's going to decrease the size to 1% to literally legislation that's going to change it to 100% to 
to being outside the prison, like I'm all the way in, like back up the truck, knock down the wall, everybody run off into the sunset. And, and I think that you have to be in an abolitionist frame mind and live in it like it's a possibility. So it's not a lifestyle. It's not a nine mm -hmm. to five for me. I'm sorry, it's not a job. It's a lifestyle. It's, a, it's not a possibility. It is my everyday actions. Mm -hmm. So an abolitionist is also on his community board because he's worrying about the, 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 the people coming from incarceration back into his community. He's also doing things in the community center or can be called on by neighbors, right? So an abolitionist is a person whose actions is totally abolishing the prison system. Give me, let me give you an example. There are people who just go around and say, close Rikers, that's cool. That's not going to happen by you just saying it. Like the wind from your breath is not going to blow it down and shut down and close or whatever. But then you have to take interns from people who are not going to be sentenced to Rikers. So we have interns in our organization that would be on Rikers if not for us. We have family members who are a part of our family group who actually need monthly meetings and sort of network of support to be there to end Rikers. But then also those family members are supporting other family members, right? Mm -hmm. Then we have visiting. We help transport people to go make visits. So we're playing every part of it. And abolition is a person who believes in a world without prisons. In other words, another system besides the one that's slavery or incarcerating a person or putting people in cages. So mm -hmm. everything that you do changes around that. Mm -hmm. Right. If you don't if you're an abolitionist, you wouldn't say, yeah, we just need lesser jails or we just need more better controlled jails. It never went out of control because it was never about having a controlled system. It was about control, controlling people. Mm -hmm. The prison system itself was built off of slavery. So how can I say any part of slavery is cool? When people ask me, how do we reform? How do we change solitary? You know, and it kills me because when I'm looking at them, I'm looking at them as a person who is talking to a person who has been poisoned. I have been yeah. poisoned by the system. And what you're saying is like, okay, five, we know you're dying because you've been poisoned, but how do we like help the kidneys stay along? Or how do we help mm -hmm. your pancreas last mm -hmm. like six more months? They want right? to keep you, you on know? life. They want to <laughs> keep you on life support. They don't right. want to like, see we, you. Right. They don't want to see you right. really live or thriving. Right. You know? So abolition to me is shutting down the ability of poisoning and killing people. So if you're not abolishing it, you're just trying to tweak it. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it plays in your favor. So abolitionists also are people directly impacted because we live in the communities that are directly impacted. I live next door to uh, um, 50 or 20 other people whose husband is locked up, their father's locked up, my son goes to school, everybody in his class is has a parent incarcerated. Like, it's a part of my daily life. Of course, this is my fight. Of course, I'm sorry I'm not taking it so long. No, you're fine. But I just can't no. comprehend how people are reformists mm -hmm. knowing that the system is built off of this atrocious system of slavery, knowing that it's unjustified. So like 90%, I believe, <laughs> the people are there are there for fucked up reasons. It shouldn't even land people in prison. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's a control system. And I think that those who have experienced slavery, when you have been stripped down, butt naked, clean, and sold to the state, and you are state property, and you're owned by that institution, and that county owns you, not your neighborhood, mm -hmm. because you get letters from home talking about how your neighborhood's deteriorating, but that neighborhood who's counting your body is benefiting, you become an abolitionist. Mm -hmm. So I think that anybody who has been impacted by the prison system are majority abolitionists, but there's some people that are about the prison system because they just don't know anything different, mm -hmm. right? right? Mm -hmm. They haven't experienced anything that mm -hmm. teaches them it's a possibility. So we have created 
like the Beyond the Bars conference. I replicated that, of course, Princeton and Harvard now, because every year we should be rethinking prisons. We should be thinking about what we can do to change that. Mm-hmm. Sorry, long answer. No, that's, I mean, that's a great answer. Perfect. And I, yeah. I really um, appreciate your time today. And Thank you. Um, you just sharing your story and uh, being so honest and forthright about, you know, everything, uh, including your, you know, your own struggles and uh, what, what's happening with your own, you know, in your own personal life, because I think that's uh, important for, you know, people to hear. And I think uh, our listeners will appreciate, you know, um, will appreciate this conversation. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you oh. so much, Five. Thank you, thank you. It's important and it's vital to echo the, the voices of those directly impacted. and. Just really quick on an ending note, um, those who suffer and live with mental health that are incarcerated spend more time, uh, more time in prison or released last and have the worst re- reintegration conditions uh, mm-hmm. out here. And it's literally the most marginalized people in society. And I just wanted to say that because that is my constant battle because that is also my personal constant battle. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that just shows you how things haven't changed. So. Right. Yeah. And one more thing, Five, if people want to like check out your work or, or follow what you do or support it, where, where should they go check you out? Incarcerativenation.org. Um, and then from there, you can get all the other different networks that we're on, the in-channel and the in-care program, um, the in-consulting services and the in-clothing line that we're trying to do. So all our projects can be at one place, incarcerativenation.org. Great. Cool. All right. Well, Thank it was you. so great talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for joining us again this week on Beyond Prisons. You can rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also find me on Twitter at phillyprof03. And you can find me on Twitter at bsonnenstein. Our uh, Twitter handle for the podcast is at beyond underscore prison, singular. And uh, you can also email us at beyondprisonspodcast at gmail.com. See you next week.